Welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage as author Paul French takes us back 100 years to 1922 and the start of modernism when architects, writers, musicians and artists began reacting to a whole new world created by talking pictures at our cinemas, radios often in our homes and skyscrapers in our cityscapes. Paul French has just written a lovely feature on modernism in Shanghai for the South China Morning Post's Post magazine, and it's well worth a read. The types of buildings, billboards, hotels, and other functional constructions, some of which you can still see there today, that reflected the architectural developments from the 1920s onwards. Here in Hong Kong, we were a little behind the curve in terms of architectural trends. And when we, as a British colonial territory, start to embrace these modernist trends, is largely after architects based in Shanghai start heading south to Hong Kong after the Communist Revolution in 1949. In this week's programme, I chat with Paul French from his home in London as he tells me about some of the modernist buildings that still exist in Hong Kong today and some I hadn't actually heard of before, hidden in plain sight. I've spent a lot of time writing and thinking about the cosmopolitan architectural influences on Shanghai particularly and thinking about that a lot in what is now the centenary of modernism that we're calling 2022 around the world. And so looking at Shanghai compared to somewhere like Hong Kong with a very different tradition and to see the architectural style and that I think is fascinating, the sort of the slight lack of modernist architecture in Hong Kong compared to somewhere like Shanghai. The American poet Ezra Pound in 1922 said that that year was year one of a new cultural landscape. And we can see that in all sorts of forms, right? Joyce publishes Ulysses, uh, Wolf publishes Jacob's Room, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. And, you know, jazz is coming into the public consciousness. We're starting to see the arrival of abstract art. And in architecture, we've got a combination of new materials so ferro-concrete, steel frame structures, meeting a new aesthetic, most of which people would probably think of as Art Deco. And, and that certain move on from the Edwardian forms of the Beaux-Arts and, and the Art Nouveau. So we start to see in architecture the emergence of modern architecture, or streamlined modern, which we see some of in Hong Kong, Art Deco, various local forms of Art Deco, Chinese Art Deco in Shanghai, uh, obviously, American Art Deco, European Art Deco. And then we move on through that to, to the Bauhaus in the later 1930s and then to brutalism, which is really the sort of end of modernist architecture in a sense. We then start talking about postmodernism. So we see all these things coming through. Modernism is really about cities and about urban areas. And so we see this in, in cities all around the world. And in Asia, we see it in Tokyo, in Tianjin as well. Again, a cosmopolitan international city, but particularly in, in Shanghai. But I think uh, as we're looking at a centenary of it, and I wrote a piece about a sort of A to Z of, of modernism, which included a lot of architecture on Shanghai for the South China Morning Post. But that made me think about, you know, what is there in, in Hong Kong and why why is Hong Kong architecturally not as modern, doesn't embrace modernism to the same extent as Shanghai or Tianjin? I, th I think it is that it was a colony. And it's certainly true, particularly when we look at Asia, that the, the, the colonies, the French or British colonies, didn't embrace that so much. They stayed with 
more sort of formal Victorian architecture or local adaptations of architecture, like in Hong Kong, what we call comprador architecture. And again, in French Indochina, we see, uh, you know, in Saigon and so on, little elements of, of the modern creeping through, but mostly fairly staid architecture. And then for various reasons, I think after the Second World War, of course, before the Second World War, of course, Shanghai is in its heyday to take Shanghai, but, but Tianjin, another sort of open international treaty port city, is in its heyday. Tokyo as well, to an extent, of course. But after the Second World War, Tokyo is pretty much flattened. And then, of course, uh, Shanghai and, and Tianjin become part of the People's Republic of China. And then we start to see, actually, more, more of an interest in, in modern architecture, modernism, in Hong Kong. And, and I think this is to do with two very specific things. One is the rebuilding of the city after the war and different changes, but most importantly, the arrival in Hong Kong of architects from Shanghai and elsewhere, but largely from Shanghai. And so a number of the buildings that we're looking at are really designed by people who were building the similar sort of buildings 10, 20, even 25 years before in Shanghai. So in Hong Kong post-1949, we actually benefit from those who are leaving Shanghai and coming south. So we're getting the architectural ideas, as you say, nearly a quarter of a century later. Yeah, and I think we can talk about this. I think other people have used the term about Hong Kong and elsewhere, a sort of delayed modernism. And elsewhere, because it was a British colony, and after the war, if you look at Indochina, for instance, the French really start to retreat after, after World War II. And so in places like Phnom Penh and Cambodia, we start to see architects like Van Mollivan, who's very well known, combining modernist architecture with traditional flourishes. We see a little bit of that in Thailand and elsewhere. We don't really see any of that in um, Hong Kong because, of course, it remains staunchly a British colony. Who is coming south then from Shanghai that we benefit from? So what we see is two types of influences coming down from Shanghai after the Second World War. The first is big architectural firms that really were the firms behind most of the big major buildings along the Shanghai Bund and across the city. So firms like Palmer and Turner. Now, they, they built many, many buildings and, and worked with people like Victor Sassoon and others uh, to build lots of modernist buildings. After the Second World War, they start, and then, of course, after 1949, they moved their operations down to Hong Kong, and they start then to construct buildings for people based on that premise that they'd used in Shanghai so successfully. Just quickly, the origins of Palmer and Turner, or what is known now as the P&T Group, date back to 1868, with an architectural firm established in Hong Kong by William Salway. In the 1880s, the company built Beaconsfield House, Hong Kong's first multi-storey shopping centre. And Mr. Salway was joined by architect Clement Palmer and structural engineer Arthur Turner. So there's the beginnings of this company, which has designed a good 30 to 40 buildings in Hong Kong and been going for 154 years. And on the other hand, we have certain architects moving down who were very important. So Fan Wen Zhao, or Robert Fan, was a very important architect in Shanghai. He, he built um, a number of great buildings there, particularly I think people know and can see still the Majestic Theatre in Shanghai. And, and he was one of the pioneers, really, along with the Chinese-American architect, Poi Gum Lee, who also came to Shanghai, but came from America and went back to America and built many buildings uh, around Chinatown in New York. They developed kind of Chinese deco. So if you know Shanghai, you might think of the old YMCA building on Shizanglu that is uh, completely modernist, but has a sort of a traditional Chinese roof on top of it. And, and so that, that tradition of Chinese deco 
that, that was developed in Shanghai also comes down to Hong Kong, where it really hadn't existed before. 1949, of course, communist revolution. People are coming south to Hong Kong. But tell me about one of the first couple of buildings after 1949 that, that we see in Hong Kong. Well, one of them is the Bank of China building, which people will know very well, on DeVoe Road, right in the heart of Central. And it was built in 1951. But of course, if you were standing there looking at it, looking up at it, and you'd never been to Hong Kong before, and you didn't know any of the history, you'd think it was the 1930s. And in Absolutely. fact, when it was built, people said, it's the Shanghai style, it's the 1930s, it would sit on the Bund in Shanghai. But it was built by Palmer and Turner, who were architects based in Shanghai, who built many of those very similar buildings. It's very much of their, their style. But yet it, it is only 1951. And I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful example, both of a transplantation of a sort of Shanghai modernism down to, to Hong Kong, but also the example again of this delayed modernism. It's really almost 20 years too late, that building, marvellous as it is but really not giving us anything particularly new in modernist architecture, but really making a statement in Hong Kong. But it was also just what Palmer and Turner knew how to build. <laughs> Interesting. But uh, what was the reaction then in 1951? I mean, I think it's a very smart looking building. Yes, no, I think it's very positive. As this is a Hong Kong radio show, I shouldn't really be too insulted, but I'm not entirely convinced that everyone in Hong Kong knew that they were slightly out of date. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, where other parts of the world were starting to move on a little bit more by that point into the start of brutalism and so on. That, again, was to come later in, in Hong Kong. So so everything is delayed. And of course, there's not really any new building going on in places like Shanghai and Tianjin to mark yourself against. So it was a good building. It's remained a good building. Just up the road from it was the old HSBC building, which, of course, is gone, uh, yeah. um, which was also in a, in a similar style. And people can see pictures of that online easily enough. And some of your listeners, I'm sure, will remember it. But, you know, that, that was replaced by a, a much later form of, of, of architecture. So the Bank of China there remains, and the interior as well. I mean, you know, if you've never been in that building, you should find an excuse to get inside it and have a look around, because there's a lot of the original features still inside. Yeah, I'm going to have a look after this. So that's the uh, Bank of China building built in 1951 by Palmer and Turner, but uh, in fact has, as you say, a feel of 1930s modernist style, so about 20 years earlier. I should say, by the way, one thing that, that given what you just said that's interesting is I can think of a couple of Hong Kong films set in the 1930s that, that use the exterior of that building. And of course, um, you know, it couldn't have been there at the time that they're recreating, yet it works very well for that period. Oh, that's interesting. So it actually benefited the Hong Kong movie industry. And uh, if we actually go pre-war, then in 1939, you've got, which is still very much with us today, is the central market. And uh, that was uh, Hong Kong's first modern indoor market. And uh, there was something else. There was another first, wasn't there? Yes, the central market was the, the first, as far as I know. And I think this has been, it's not something I particularly want to spend my life investigating, but it's quite interesting um, that it was the first specifically female public convenience in uh, in Hong Kong was built in to uh, the central market. The market's very interesting because it is a, a lovely modern building with elements of what would be referred to as streamlined modern, which became quite popular after the war in, in Hong Kong. But, but this is really a, a pre-war example. 
or just pre-war example. And, and it's a very functional building, and modernism is often all about functionalism and utilitarianism, and it does the job very well. I think, I mean, I don't have evidence of this, but I think, again, I have to say, I think although it was built by the Hong Kong government uh, and their architects department, it was, I think, inspired by buildings that had been done in Shanghai. The abattoir, which is up in Hong Kong, in Shanghai and has now been sort of rebranded as a sort of lifestyle center and called 1933. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely amazing building in terms of running cattle around all these great ferro-concrete tracks. It probably inspired that. And so, and, and along with greater awareness of hygiene and food safety and things like that. So it's, it's a really wonderful building. I'm not going to comment on the recent refurbishment that it's had. People have to make up their minds whether they like that, but the exterior remains still very impressive. Yeah, that's very interesting cross comparison there with the abattoir, as you say, in Shanghai, which I did visit when I was was there, which is absolutely superb building, as you say, is being revamped to, you know, I think it had bars in and or art as well. But here in Hong Kong, yes, the central market, as you say, has divided opinion. I tend to feel that it could have done with more of that functional purpose that it that it was uh, originally constructed for but the actual exterior we still have the central market as a building i mean any of these that you're talking to me about both the modernist buildings and you as you say this delayed modernist is um you know it's it's actually terms of hong kong it's great that they've survived at all but we've been talking about central market constructed in 1939 the bank of china which had more of a 30s look about it but uh, in fact is built by palmer and turner in 1951. I actually have to say I'm quite a fan of Palmer and Turner. What about you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as, as, a, as a primarily a Shanghai hand, um, I won't have a word said against Palmer and Turner. I think they, they hired great architects. They had good clients. They never skimped. And uh, they kind of built wonderful buildings that exist and are in fantastic condition and remain and, and will outlive many buildings that have been built since. It's a really fantastic architectural legacy. And I'm going to make a statement here that someone's going to prove me wrong. I don't think anyone's done a brilliant coffee table book of, of all of Palmer and Turner's great buildings. And I think that, you know, for any publisher listening, that, that really would be, well, it'd be a book I'd buy, certainly. And I think uh, it would be a great archive of many amazing China Coast buildings because they, they did build up in Tianjin. They built in various other parts of China as well. And they weren't the only firm that were doing that sort of thing. I mean, if you look at some of the American influence firms that were working out in Nanjing, when Nanjing was the capital, of course, you know, there was this great flurry of modern building there. You can still see it in, in the campus of Nanjing University. Those were also great buildings. So at that time, that wasn't happening in Hong Kong. You know, the, the original buildings of Hong Kong University are very different buildings to say, uh, Nanjing University, which was which at that time would have looked much more modern. Now I'm talking to Paul French in London. Actually, looking through a, a list that you sent to me earlier, all of them are functional buildings. So we've got, for example, transport amongst them in the form of the Hong Hum Ferry Pier, which is uh, much later in 1979. Yes, I mean I, I think it's the case that um, you know if you want to see modernist houses, residences, dwellings. I mean, you know, you've got to go to somewhere like Shanghai. There just wasn't so much of that construction going on. And, and even up on the peak where people could pretty much do what they wanted, you know, we, we only saw one or two 
modernist inspired uh, structures up there. Mostly it was fairly, you know, fairly dated, fairly conventional earlier forms of architecture, Victorian Edwardian forms with, with local, as I say, comp what we used to call comprador uh, flourishes, verandas and, and, and so on. Um, the Hong Kong Ferry Pier, which was built in 1979. So this really is delayed modernism because it's streamlined modern. And talking about this being the centenary of modernism, you know, we see the first streamlined modern buildings in Europe and then moving out to residences and various other buildings in Shanghai and Tokyo before the end of the 1920s. So, so this is really quite significantly later. <laughs> the important thing is that it was, I mean, the, the great one that I would love to have used, all of the ferry terminals were built, you know, in similar styles. But if you'd have gone to the one at Edinburgh Place, of course, you know, which was sadly destroyed in 2007. That was the sort of motherload of streamlined modern ferry terminal architecture in Hong Kong. And, and um, you know, at the risk of uh, getting into trouble, I'm going to say it was absolutely criminal to destroy that building. And so it carried on. It was a local architect at Hung Hom, Hung Yip Chan, for, for the architectural office of the Hong Kong government, who really developed this streamlined modern look for the ferry terminals. And there were ones in similar style built at Central, built at Shimsha Choi, and, and that sort of went on. I think if we look at Hung Yip Chan, who was, who was the architect of the ferry terminals, I mean, he was born in 1921. So he was born basically the year modernism starts but he was somewhat of a an old fogey in architectural terms i mean he builds these we look at them now and they're wonderful but you know reasonably dated internationally at that time and what i also find interesting is that you know now we're on the fourth generation peers you know the ones in in central mm. the central peers particularly if you look at sort of peers seven and eight you know, we see a reversion away from streamlined, modern and uh, more modern forms of architecture and back to a kind of faux classical um, design. <laughs> There's a sort of mock Edwardian clock tower uh, and electric bells. You know, the piers have these, as you're coming into those piers, you'll see they have these kind of Greek-inspired Doric columns, which is a pre-modern modernism, a form of architecture that's being, I wouldn't go so far as to say revived. It's just sort of faux copy of that period. So again, you know, Hong Kong was late to the party of modernism, then built these amazing public buildings like the Hong Kong Ferry Pier. And then when it knocked down some of those wonderful buildings, decided to go back pre-modernism to find inspiration for the new ones, which is kind of almost globally unique, I think. <laughs> I think I think we do faux very well, if you don't mind. So, well, if you like the if you like the clock tower down at the new ferry terminals, then um, you know you are more than welcome to have it, Amory. <laughs> it's a bit wedding cakey. So this idea that uh, I mean I, I love your description of um, how we're going into reverse with with the ferry piers and the, the ferry piers are virtually not quite as contentious as Edinburgh Place, which uh, they they kind of replaced with a bit of reclamation in between. But um, certainly I think they do divide opinion. I actually find it it's funny what actually grows on you in Hong Kong after uh, a few years. Now we've got a religious one here. It's the North Point Methodist Church. Now this is uh, built back in 1961. Now, when I think about other areas like Britain, there were a lot of areas in the 60s, and certainly Hong Kong had an aspect of that, where there was a lot of previous buildings being taken down, although I think in Hong Kong, we particularly have that in the 1980s. But the North Point Methodist Church in 1961, was it actually replacing anything else, or was it completely original? 
I think it's an original building. And, and again, it's an example of delayed modernism. It's very interesting in Hong Kong because the architect was Fan Wen Zhao, Robert Fan, who had moved down from Shanghai, where he was very well known for some pre-war, highly modern buildings. And later went on in Hong Kong as well to embrace elements of the Bauhaus brutalism and Corbusier. So when he first comes down to Hong Kong, he's kind of, you know, really just doing what he was doing, thinking the way he was thinking in Shanghai before the war. And then this kind of everyone stopped thinking about things while the war was on. And then he starts thinking again and he starts moving towards ideas. He moves with modernism and starts thinking of the Bauhaus brutalism. And, and in this case, the North Point Methodist Church, the real inspiration for that was Corbusier's Notre Dame de Haute in, in Ronchamp in France. So it's an incredible building. It's inspired by Corbusier and, and what he's doing in Europe at the time and everything. And it sits there in, in North Point, not often, I think, being talked about, but it, it is a rather wonderful building. And it, 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 as I say, it illustrates that modernism didn't stay, even though it was delayed, it didn't stay still in Hong Kong. It kept moving on with different trends. And also this influence of the Shanghai trained and the Shanghai practitioner architects coming down to Hong Kong after World War II and after 1949. Yes, I think the influences are really very interesting that you're describing. No, I've never really thought about North Point Methodist Church, but I think any of these buildings that, you know, you're, you're actually making us give them a second look and uh, and all of these different influences, as you say, the European, the French, and also this uh, architect coming down from Shanghai now, this is, as you say, modernist, but done much later in 1961. Do you have any ideas why he might have chosen that style for a church? I think, as I say, Corbusier was doing churches like that in France. And, and, and funnily enough, we do, we do see a sort of an embrace of modern architecture by religious in, in Europe, right? I mean, if you think of, I mean, first of all, the rebuilding of churches after the war, so the sort of projects that were done in Coventry and places like that. And also, if you think of the Catholic Cathedral in Liverpool, and just when you drive around Britain, uh, for instance, or France, you will see lots of quite modernist churches in modernist or Le Corbusier-influenced, Bauhaus-influenced churches on quite small scale and quite large scale as well. You, you will come across them quite a lot. So in this sense, Robert Fan had come down to Hong Kong and was still very much in touch with international trends. And um, obviously the Methodist church in Hong Kong supported him. And so North Point ended up with a, with a very nice structure. Natural market and its style, is the remaining Wan Chai market also comparable to that? Yes, I think so. And I definitely include Wan Chai market in a, in a, in a slightly longer list of, of great modernist buildings in Hong Kong. I just think that central market is, well, as the name says, so central. It is 1939 and it is a wonderful example, like the abattoir up in Shanghai that I mentioned, of a purely functional building that by using modernist techniques is absolutely perfectly suited for what it does and actually improves on what it does by, you know, being more hygienic, easier to sluice out, easier to clean, has offices for the administrators of the market built into it. And as I say, you know, public conveniences, first woman's toilet in, in Hong Kong and so on. I mean, and that, that this, this makes it a, a very modern building for a very modern lifestyle in a very modern world. And, and that's what makes it so important, I think. I think also, I mean, as a non-architect type person, I mean, I have to say with, with uh, you know, despite the fact that it was built so long ago, it still fits in with Hong Kong. I mean, I don't look at it and think, gosh, 
that that's uh, that's a building that's now 80 years old that i think is linked to the influence of the bauhaus it, it's interesting when you walk around and look at buildings that were done by the Bauhaus or inspired by the Bauhaus architects, German, of course, they really are quite timeless, more timeless than Art Deco or Chinese Deco or even Streamline Modern. They're less, they're, they're more universal. architecture. So an example of Bauhaus architecture is Wan Chai Market, just about saved, though now swamped by large buildings. The Bauhaus was a German school of design, applied arts and architecture from 1919 to 1933 during the Weimar Republic. Founded by Walter Gropius, those linked to it include the abstract artist Vasily Kandinsky. The Bauhaus influence on furniture and electric lamps can still be seen very much today. In terms of Bauhaus architecture, it was all about simple, functional design without any ornamentation, the use of steel, glass, concrete and other modern materials, and a focus on simple geometric forms such as the triangle, square and circle. I think Hong Kong is interesting in that it does embrace some of these styles and then it does it slightly later. And I think it's that unique set of circumstances of being a colony and not really embracing the internationalism and cosmopolitan of modernism before World War II. And then after World War II, having this great benefit of the flow of architects and architectural firms from Shanghai down to Hong Kong. But it carries on as we move forward. So if you think of sort of brutalism, which is really the tail end of, of, of modernist architecture as such, you know, that happens in Europe from the 1960s, 1970s. And yet, you know, if we look at somewhere like the Hong Kong Jockey Club Clubhouse at Sha Tin, I mean, that's 1985, but it's done by a a well-known brutalist-inspired British architect, John Prescott. But it's sort of a, a fascinating building in that, in a sense, brutalism doesn't sit very well with hyper-capitalist, clubby, venerated elites of, of Hong Kong. It's a sort of a, a bit rough and ready for them. You know, it's, a, it's an egalitarian aesthetic that doesn't always sit well with the way that Hong Kong society is structured. But there are still a few brutalist buildings around Hong Kong. Yeah, the Sharting Clubhouse, I have to say, I've been to a number of times uh, to, when I've gone up to, to Sharting. But that's in, in 1985, of course, when, when Sharting Racecourse uh, was constructed. So I think it's interesting if you look at some of the, the other brutalist architecture in Hong Kong, and I'm thinking particularly of, say, the Science Centre up at Hong Kong University, which was done by Hong Kong's own sort of leader of their brutalist movement, uh, Zeto Y, I think, and uh, the local architect did that building. I mean, that is a functional building that sits very well with a brutalist aesthetic, which really suits office blocks or, or, or public housing blocks or, or a university building. You know, we see a lot of brutalist buildings around around university campuses all around Europe and, and elsewhere. The Sharting Clubhouse, though, is sort of interesting. It's 1985, so it's really almost nearly 30 years after brutalism emerged in Europe. Again, it's a, it's delayed brutalism, but a very, very delayed modernism by this point. What I think is interesting is that 
normally when we think about brutalist buildings, we think about what the interior is like. So that kind of stripped back concrete aesthetic that you get in, you know, brutalist university buildings and so on. None of that exists in the clubhouse, as you'll know better than I, if you go there regularly. So the refurbishment of, of the inside of the clubhouse really just totally ignores the brutalist aesthetic of raw materials and textured surfaces. And brutalist architects always talk about simple silhouettes and uh, geometric shapes that are really what brutalist interior design was not to judge it too much but to be actually very judgy uh, you know the interior of that building is kind of flash trash bling bling um, which which is fine very 80s and, and early 90s but has really no relationship to the brutalist aesthetic whatsoever so so the facade of the building is highly brutalist and the interior of the building is sort of uh, something completely different my thanks to author Paul French talking me through some modernist and delayed modernist buildings in Hong Kong. I look forward to exploring some of the ones I haven't visited as yet and having a good look around the interior of the Bank of China building built in 1951. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Heritage.